Well, you all know that there's a lot of crazy stuff going on in the world. There, there always has been really, but every once in a while, culture sort of digresses. And while human beings always sin, sin sort of becomes in vogue. And sin is very much in vogue in our times to the point that that which is good is often called evil and that which is evil is often called good. So there's a sharp rise in atheism, of course. I was talking to a Christian brother today that said he brought a man to church who's never been to church in his life. And he grew up in Canada. This is his first day in church, the first service. This is becoming increasingly common. Adultery and sexual perversion is widely accepted. Lying, even the world is even softening. Who would have ever thought this to pedophilia? It's becoming less and less of a revolting, disgusting sin and more and more acceptable. We see ethnic strife, tyranny from our leaders, lawlessness, all sorts of things. That's the negative side. We don't wanna spend a lot of time on the negative side today, but I wanna emphasize the fact that all of us come from sinful backgrounds. And the cool thing is, is that God is in the business of saving sinners. And he is saving sinners. The nuttier it gets outside, the more people we get in here. And the more people are getting saved and realizing there's a problem with the world and they're hearing the gospel and they're being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're repenting of their sins, they're calling on the name of the Lord and they have been forever saved. So here we are, composed largely of people that have been saved from all sorts of sins and we're grateful to the Lord and we're trying our best to serve him. But let's be real. We're all susceptible to backsliding, to getting caught in sin. And so the church has to know how do we respond to a Christian who is trapped in sin? What do we do when there's sin in the church? What do we do when born again, blood-bought believers fall back into their old ways of life, get carried, carried away by temptations and distractions? If you don't think it can happen, why in the world in the Lord's prayer do we pray that God would deliver us from temptation? We pray that because we have the capacity to fall back into sin and sometimes it happens. So we wanna be vigilant as individuals, but what do we do when we see another brother or sister caught up in sin? Do we just mind our own business and walk away? No, that's not biblical. Do we ignore it, pretend it doesn't exist? No. Do we carry on serving as if nothing had happened? Do we gossip about it? Or do we pray about it and then say nothing? Or do we relabel it as many liberal churches have done as no longer a sin? You know, we're sort of updating things and apparently the 10 commandments don't apply anymore. We don't do these things in spite of the fact that there might be a temptation to do those things. Rather, we commit ourselves to the hard laborious work of restoration. We're in the restoration business. And we ourselves, of course, are being restored day by day as we sin and confess our sins, sin again and confess our sins. But if you love God's church and you have a passion for people, you won't zip your lips, you won't walk away, you won't ignore sin in the life of another brother or sister. You'll follow God's patterns to deal with it. And there are many passages in the Bible that point us toward the ministry of reconciliation. Matthew 18, Three-step process for church discipline. It's outlined there. You should be familiar with it. First Corinthians 5, heinous 
incestuous sin was taking place in the early church. Paul instructed the Corinthians how to deal with that. 2 Corinthians 5 is a call to the ministry of reconciliation. And today we're in Galatians 6, which is also a restoration text. And it's really divided into two sections. We're going to study verses 1 through 10. It's sort of two messages in one. The first half of this passage helps us to understand that we are called to work hard to restore the fallen. So that's, mess, that's the first part of the message. It's a ministry of reconciliation, to work hard to restore those that have fallen into sin. The second heart, half is about our responsibility to contribute financially to the work of the ministry. What, at what points do these sort of collide? Well, they, they collide in the sense that both of these in series of instructions are about loving the church, contributing to the church, and not just sort of focusing on you know, yourself. So we'll start with the first half, which is we work to restore the fallen. We leave no man behind. When a brother or sister is caught up in sin, we don't just walk away and stay silent. We pursue, we persuade, and we encourage repentance. Here's what it says. In Galatians chapter six, verses one and following. Brothers, meaning that this is an in-house conversation for the church. This is not how you necessarily interact with a person that's not yet a follower of Christ, but for the church, it says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness Then there's a warning, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, he is nothing. He deceives himself, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each one will have to bear his own load." Verses one and two, and also verse 10, if you skip down, make it clear that this series of instructions are in-house mandates, meaning they are mandates for Christians. Again, I'll emphasize that. These are mandates for Christians, how we treat one another, how we interact with one another. If someone is caught up in sin, it starts with the word brothers, which is a familial term reminding us that we are a family. And in verse 10, it says, especially to those who are of the household of faith, speaking of giving, this is a, this, this is a series of instructions for the Christian community. Now let's suppose anyone in our church is caught up in any transgression. It can happen and it does happen. We, in our flesh, as I've mentioned already, might be tempted to say nothing because we don't want to be, you know, God forbid if someone says you're judgmental. God forbid, right? God forbid if someone lashes out at us or gets angry with us. So we just, we say nothing or we ignore it. But that's, that's wrong. The reason why we address transgressions or sin is because sin results in a weakened relationship with God. God is robbed of glory and other people are negatively affected by it. It's just very destructive. It's like a disease. Oh, I got a tumor growing on my arm. Oh, well, 
No, you, you deal with it because you know that if you, if you have a tumor growing in your arm and you don't deal with it, it's going to get bigger and probably eventually take your life. So you deal with sin in the church in the same way that you deal with disease in your body. You're proactive because you understand things just get worse and worse and worse if you don't react. So we deal with it and our goal is to see repentance and then restoration and then reconciliation. That's our goal. We're not in the revenge business. We're not interested in just making people feel bad for the sake of making them feel bad. We are about the ministry of reconciliation. We are redemptive agents commissioned by God to preach the gospel and hold one another to account. So someone's caught in sin. Who's supposed to deal with that? You who are spiritual, Galatians teaches us. This is not to be understood as someone who's absolutely and completely sanctified or no one would, no one would qualify. But it's someone who is much, a mature, godly believer. We all sin. The difference between a straying Christian and a mature Christian is a mature Christian is constantly confessing and making it right. A straying Christian starts to let the sins build up, doesn't deal with them, and they grow. So we know about 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's, that's not an evangelistic verse. That's a verse for Christians. You confess your sin daily and the Lord forgives and you're back on track. It's like you go out every day and you get sweaty and dirty. You don't let it build up or you're going to repulse people. You jump in the shower, clean it off. But you can't just shower once in your life. You got to keep doing it because it keeps, the dirt keeps coming back. And in the same way, you have to keep confessing because the dirt keeps coming back. So you confess your sins daily. But if you stop confessing and you just let the sin build up and you start to become comfortable in sin, those who are spiritual, who are taking their daily showers, need to have a conversation with you. And what is the goal? It says, should restore him. That's the goal. The goal is restoration. And in order to do that, we, we help them to bear their burdens. We'll talk about that momentarily. It's never vindictive. So when we're thinking about, okay, how do we approach? What do we say? It's always strategic. What's our strategic goal? Restoration. Just keep that in mind. It's always, rest, it's always restorative. They may say, I'm not interested in restoration and run off. Well, that's their problem. But don't be part of the problem by being belligerent, ungracious, mean-spirited. Instead, the Bible tells us to approach them in a spirit of gentleness, which according to chapter 5, verse 22, is one of the fruits of the spirit. Now, gentleness is not to be understood as being super, super quiet or passive or easily pushed around. It's really about bridled boldness. When you have a horse, horse is a lot of power, and you ride your horse, it's a good idea to have some reins on it with a bridle and you can direct the power. You got to restrain it or it can go crazy. Energy power can bless you or hurt you. So you restrain the energy with 
a bridle. Gentleness is not the opposite of courage. Gentleness is not the opposite of boldness, but it's taking courage and boldness and being bridled, strategic in the way you do it. So here's how this works very practically. Your brother or sister in Christ is having an affair. Your brother or sister in Christ is lying. Your brother or sister in Christ has become a materialist. Your brother or sister in Christ is forsaking the gathering together of believers, whatever the sin might be. And you go and you confront them. If you're not bridled and gentle, I know what's going to happen. Chances are they're going to push your buttons. You're going to say, well, yeah, but what about you? What, remember when you said that? Or you, and you get all frazzled and now you get defensive and there's, uh, it turns into a yelling match. That's not gentle. That's not redemptive. But if you go in and you think to yourself, no matter what they say, no matter how they react, I know how I'm going to react. I know what I'm going to say. I know what the boundaries are going to be to this relationship. It goes a whole lot better. So I'm not going to let them push my buttons. I'm not going to let them stonewall. I'm not going to let them take, take this conversation in another direction. I'm going to be gentle, but that doesn't exclude being bold. Now, this is critical for us to understand because as Paul unpacks for the early church a process for restoring someone to relationship with Christ, he issues this warning. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. What does that mean? Well, when you, when you step into the life of someone who is living in sin, there are dangers for you. They may start to disclose some of the disgusting things that they've been engaged in. Get your mind turning. Oh, I used to do that too. Oh, other people do it? I guess it's not that big of a deal. They might give you too much information, right? That, that just puts dirty thoughts in your mind. You're like, I, I did not want to know that. So you have to exercise wisdom and discretion. Is this, is this necessary information? Do I need to know this? Or like I've already mentioned, they may attack you and then you attack back and then it, you lose your cool and you lose your testimony and now you're part of the problem. Or the conversation might go great and then you experience demonic attack after the fact. Or the, you know, the devil starts to attack you and cause you to question whether you said the right thing or whether it was your duty or responsibility or whether you're even worthy to engage in the ministry of reconciliation. So we have to watch ourselves. When you folks, I've been in, I, I used to be in the old days when the church was smaller. I was always the sharp tip of the spear <laughs> when it came to church discipline. And there's a lot of crazy stuff can take, can, that can take place when you engage in that kind of ministry. And you have to be really careful and on your A game, so to speak, with the Lord to make sure that you are not tempted and dragged away or even just discouraged. Sometimes people in high offices like my own stumble and fall. And what often happens is younger Christians just leave the church and they say, well, my pastor had an affair. My pastor, it was discovered was a liar, a cheat, a charlatan. I don't want anything to do with the church. Well, what happened there? They had a problem and you made it yours. You succumb to the temptation of giving up on the church. So all sorts of things can happen when it comes to dealing with sin among God's people. But we are called 
to engage in this ministry nevertheless. The text says in verse two, this is the law of Christ. We've already learned from Galatians, we're not saved by obedience to the law, but Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of a law and therefore he's the ultimate standard. So he's our new law. So when you think, okay, well, how should I speak? Oh, I, I should speak like Christ. How should I act? I should act like Christ. How should I prioritize my life? Like Christ. Christ is our new law. So there is a standard that we are pointing people to, and it is Christ. Otherwise, we, be, we become lawless. And in this process, we're also told to bear one another's burdens. Now, what does burden bearing look like? So uh, one of my, I think it was one of my professors, not entirely sure on that because my memory's a little thin, but in Bible college or seminary, one of the two, we were in a counseling class. And I, I think this concept came up in that context, this, this idea of transference. So picture person A is living in sin and person B is the spiritual one trying to restore them. So person A has sin in their lives, pictured as a big bag of garbage on their shoulders that they're bearing. It could be their, their, their lifestyles characterized by deceit or unbridled sexual passion or materialism or anger, whatever it might be. There's their sin. And it is stinking up their life. That's what garbage does. It stinks up your life. It leaks on you. It, it's gross. And some pure-minded person shows up and says, hey, I'd like to help to take that burden off and take it to the garbage. There's a temptation that moment for that person to say, oh, you want it? Let me give you some of my garbage. And they lash out at you or they reject you or they attack you or they gossip about you or they try to sue you or they falsely accuse you. And all of a sudden you got your own bag of garbage and you're angry and you're bitter and you're lashing back. And it's in that moment you say, no, no, I'm not gonna take your garbage. I'm not gonna allow you to transfer your sin to me, but I'm, I'm here to help you get rid of it. Will you accept my offer to help you to get rid of it? But what you don't wanna do is allow them to transfer the garbage to you. So again, care must be exercised when you're dealing with sin in another person's life. Now, verses three to four, if you reread them, essentially focuses in on the standard, which is Christ. So it's not about comparing yourself to others. It's not about comparing yourself to others. If you think you're something when you're nothing, you're deceived. So if you're engaged in church discipline, you're like, well, I'm, I'm a spiritual giant in the church, so I have the capacity to discipline you. No, you have no authority outside of Christ and any righteousness that you have is from him. This is why we're called in verse four to test our own works, to make sure that if we're boasting, it's not, when he says boast in yourself, it's not saying, well, you should go around boasting about yourself, but it goes on to say, and not in his neighbor. In other words, there should be no comparison in the boasting process. If you're gonna boast, ultimately you're boasting in what Christ has done in your life. Both, it would be wrong for us to say, well, I'm here because I'm better than you. I may be better off in the moment, but I'm not better than. Or I'm here because you need to be more like me. You know, knock, knock, knock. I'm here to talk to you about some sin in your life. What's your goal? I want you to be more like Aaron Rock because I got it together. It's not that. 
Now, we want to be good examples to one another. We do, we do want to be good examples to one another, but we're only even capable of being good examples to one another to the degree that we have conformed ourselves to the example of Jesus. So it's not even us, really. It's Jesus through us. So we're called here to test, verse 4 again, let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone. It's you and God that have to answer, and not in your neighbor. It means that each of us has a calling and a relationship with the Lord, and it is that call and relationship fundamentally that we should be evaluating. Really, really critical for us to understand that. So let's bear, let's do a good job of bearing one another's burdens. And you're going to be able to bear one another's burdens if you are burdened for the health and welfare of the Christian church. Now, elders, of course, are ultimately responsible to exercise church discipline. But by the time you get to the third stage of church discipline, where someone is being declared to be an unbeliever, this is the task for the whole church. You know, if, if church discipline is not just when you're dragged up front or something like that and flogged. Church discipline is when you tap your brother or sister on the shoulder and say, hey, I think in all, in all respect, I think you're, you're straying a little bit in this area or that. All of us should be experiencing a measure of discipline every day in our conversations, in our reading with the word. We're always being disciplined, being redirected, being sharpened, if you will. And that's a task for all of us to engage in. Now we bear one another's burdens out of love for the church because we're passionate about purity. We want to see God's holiness maintained and ultimately because we love the Lord and we want to see him glorified through his people. So practically speaking, do you know someone who claims to be a Christian right now who's living in ongoing, unconfessed sin? And if you do, have you said anything? Will you say anything? When you do, how are you going to say it? Will you say it prayerfully? And will you be willing to follow God's biblical pattern to see it through hopefully to restoration. Folks, by the way, we're not responsible for the outcome. Sometimes and oftentimes people turn and return to Christ. Sometimes they reveal that they're not really believers at all and they, they just run off. And that's a sad thing to witness. But church discipline and restoration is one of the marks of a pure unadulterated Christian church. You know, it's, it's interesting that if you study church history and you look at the decline of church movements over the last couple thousand years, one of the things you inevitably see in churches that decline or denominations or movements that decline and fall away is a lack of church discipline. Liberal churches think, you know, we gotta, we're gonna try to get more people in, so we're gonna lower the standards. We're going to do a let, live and let live approach. We're going to try that. We're going to redefine what's right and wrong. We're going to redefine 
biblical sexuality. We're going to redefine marriage. We're going to affirm the world's views on these matters because we don't want to be judgmental. I mean, God forbid someone think we're judge. Someone thinks we're judgmental, and it always works against them. No one's clamoring to attend left-leaning liberal churches. They're all declining. They're all on life support because they have no life in them. The spirit of God is long since gone. So while we obviously want to be lively and exercise grace and mercy, there are standards that Christian churches will maintain. You can't just do whatever you want and still claim the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If our response to that is, well, we're not going to say anything because we love you, that's, that's hollow love. That's, that's fake love. That's like the permissive parent that is so desperate not to offend their child, they let their child put their hand on the hot stove or drive like a fool through the streets when they have their driver's licenses and their child loses their life or whatever it might be. No, we, we need to be, part of love is to maintain boundaries and to challenge people to surrender themselves to the Lord. So let's commit ourselves to doing a good job in this area. Now, if you love the church, the second part of the message is about the way we invest our time, our talents and treasures in the work of the ministry. We work to support gospel ministry. Whenever I encounter passages like this in a biblical text, in my flesh, it's admittedly a little weird because I'm a vocational pastor. But then I'm like, yeah, whatever. I'm just going to preach it as is anyway, because we believe in unapologetic preaching. But I just want you to know that I'm aware of the elephant in the room. But here's what the text says. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. If you got a field and you put nothing in it, you think you're going to get corn in the fall? Soybeans in the fall, vegetables in the fall. No, you'll get something, weeds, which are worse than nothing because then you got to pull them all out or spray them. But if you plant seeds, you'll get a harvest. So that's the idea. When you invest in ministry, you benefit from it and so do others. When you don't invest in ministry, you get nothing. It's a basic principle of life. For the one who sows to his own flesh, in other words, when you spend your, shall we say, your time, your talents and your treasures on good old-fashioned me, just on my wants, my needs, my desires, my retirement, my house, my goods, my, my intentions, well, it says you will from the flesh reap corruption. If you just invest in the horizontal world, none of which lasts. Well, you're investing essentially in nothing. That which is, the Bible says, moth, moth, um, the moths will come and corrupt. But then it goes on to say, but the one who sows to the spirit, meaning to eternal things, will reap from the spirit eternal life. And so let us not grow weary of doing good persevere. For in due season, he will reap if we do not give up. If you have a garden, 
I know many of you are gardening. I'm seeing it all over social media. It's sort of been a, a gardening renaissance taking place. <laughs> if you're into gardening, this is the hardest time of the year because while you're reaping some, it's incredibly dry out right now. So you got to keep the water on the plants, right? And if you're like, man, I've been doing this for April and May, but I'm going to give up in July and August before the full harvest. You're not going to have anything to show because it's all going to die. So you, you keep it up. Even in the dry season, you keep it up. If you do not give up, and then verse 10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially, this is our priority, to those who are of the household of faith. Verse six is a directive to financially support those who preach the word of God to God's people, the pastors, the missionaries of the Christian church, which is interesting because Galatians is one of the earliest books written in the New Testament, Mark and Galatians being on the earlier end of the corpus of New Testament scripture. And evidently, Paul and others were already being supported financially by the church. When I was growing up, I was taught everyone was a volunteer. Well, everyone does serve voluntarily. There's no such thing as coercion in ministry, whether it's lay ministry. Lay just means laos, it's from the Greek word people. Or whether it is someone serving in one of the church offices. There was a call early on and a recognition that in order to do ministry, you need money. You need money, it's reality. The cool thing is this isn't framed as a rebuke or a grim task. It was just an affirmation to a church that evidently was already doing that. And I think it's gonna serve the same purpose today in our church. It's just an affirmation to a church that's already doing really well at this. I love the fact too, that the word share is used here. We're supposed to share. You don't pay your way in church. I, I was laughing because about 25 years ago, I had this guy come up to me and he said, I'd really like to become a member, but I can't afford it. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, isn't there like a, an invoice or something? I'm like, no, there's no invoice. So you don't have to pay. Now, when you get your electricity bill, you pay it. That's the language. I got to pay my electricity bill. You get your tax bill from the municipality. You pay it. You don't say, oh, I'd like to share my money with the electricity company or share my money with the municipality. You pay the bill. But if your son or daughter comes to you and says, mom, I'm kind of broke, car broke down. You don't say, well, I'm going to pay you some money. You share what you have. Why? Because you don't have a relationship with the corporations, but you have a relationship with your children. You understand it's a family. And in the same way, nobody pays to come to church, but we share of our time, our talents and our treasures because we love the family of God. And it's the same idea here when it comes to the support of Christian ministry. And we want to be generous in that regard, not cheap, not cheapskates. Cheap churches are weak churches. The last thing we want to do is to be talking about money every week because people are cheapskates. Unfortunately, we don't have to because we have a very generous church. But if you are cheap, then you're going to get cheap ministry. And you're going to get cheap rewards. 
If we spend on things that merely gratify the flesh, it says, it's, we, we sow to our own flesh from which the flesh will reap corruption. This is always a, this is always a challenge because every one of us has an income. And the question is, well, how much am I spending on me, myself, and I, and how much am I spending on the, church, the ministry of the Christian church in our culture? It's, you know, we got to think about that. I remember a friend of mine, he told me this shocking story. He's, he's about my age, a couple years older. And this is going back 30 years. He says, well, my dad was a pastor in a German Baptist church here in Ontario, I think down near St. Catharines. And this church was so cheap in its support of, they just had the one pastor at the time, that he lived in a, the pastor lived in like a manse, a parsonage, like a, a house that the church owned. And the deacons board at the time treated this man like, like dirt. So if he preached a sermon or ran a service that they didn't like, one of the deacons would literally walk over to the manse and shut the power off for the week. Just turn, turn the power off to the house. And they got into an altercation at one point. And he, the deacon said to the pastor, all you pastors deserve is a couple loaves of bread and a chicken every week, right? Now, <laughs> I wouldn't put up with that. I'm, so I'm not gracious enough for that. But it's, it's this weird mindset. Well, pastors and missionaries and even churches should just sort of be, be getting along on a shoestring budget as we build our paneled houses offsite. That's the mindset, right? And that is disgustingly unbiblical. That's disgustingly unbiblical. It's intolerable. When we give, no matter whether it's me giving to you, you giving to me, you giving to the person next to you, we should always be on the generous side of things because God has been so generous to us. It's not about, it's not so much about a percentage. It's not so much about like, give me the rule book to live by. It's about having a gener generous spirit and, and wanting to shovel our money out into other people's laps, knowing that God has a much bigger shovel and will shovel it back to us as he sees fit. So why, why do we support Christian ministry? Well, it, it, it aids in a sense of ownership and partnership, fellowship. We call ourselves ministry partners here at the church. It frees you from the bondage of money. Like there's something about just giving your money away that, that allows you to be more free about it. It's, it's, it's counterintuitive to our flesh. It's like, oh, I have money. I'm just going to give some away. It, just, it allows me to steward my money with much more of a sense of freedom, a much more lighthearted about it. It alleviates stress by increasing faith. There's a difference between the two, stress and faith. Stress is, stress is fundamentally rooted in your desire to control your life, period. And faith is fundamentally rooted in a desire to allow God to control your life. And giving is a, a regular discipline that positions us to grow in faith and to alleviate stress. You also get better ministry for you and your loved ones. Pastor Blake, we're going to have to get used to that language, by the way, because we have decided to appoint Blake Hill to a position of youth pastor in our church. And 
In the fall, we hope to lay hands on him and a couple other elders, not like lay hands on them, but lay hands on them and uh, appoint them to the office of, of elder. So he was mentioning in his um, announcements that we're not asking for money to fund the academy. That's a cool thing because you've already given a lot of money. And it's nice that our church is generously supported and we can support church plants and do day camps and take care of our premises and on and on and on without having to beg for it. Nobody wants to, nobody wants to come to church near people begging them for money every week. And we don't have to do that because you've already taken this teaching to heart. And this is a blessing for us. And also we're looking for spiritual fruit. We don't want to be so heavenly minded that we are disconnected from earthly realities. And the reality is, is that in this physical world, we need money to pay the bills. And when we are able to do ministry because money is not an encumbrance, we see lives changed as a result. I don't know how many of you came to the church this week and saw the young people here, but there was some great ministry happening in this church with lots of young people who were here Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday being ministered to. And we can do that kind of stuff because of the generosity of God's people. And then finally, we're called to persevere in verse nine. Don't grow weary, persevere, don't give up. Ministry, by the way, almost never bears fruit until there's resistance followed by perseverance. I hope you know that. Just like if you're gonna lift weights, you have to have some resistance against your arm in order for your muscles to grow. You don't build mass laying on the couch, staring at the ceiling. You need to, to have some resistance. And perseverance, if you think about it, by definition requires some resistance. Otherwise you're not persevering against anything. So God calls us to persevere and thank God he permits us to experience some resistance in order to help us to grow in our perseverance. We have seen this in a very concrete way in the last two years. When we took a principled stand two years ago, not to allow the status totalitarians to determine and dictate the terms of Christian worship, from a human perspective, I was disturbed. So were our leaders, so were you. What's gonna happen? I actually thought at the time in my flesh, we'll probably we lose our facility. And, and yet we took a principled stance. It wasn't pragmatic. It wasn't because, oh, this is gonna bring hundreds of people into our church. That wasn't even crossing our mind. It was a principled stance. And God allowed us to be dragged through the mud back and forth. But on the other side of it, there's like 700 more people in our church. The baptistry has been full. Right? And many, many people, many, many people have been saved. And I was never expecting this, but we have influence over other churches across the country. People call us for input and advice and counsel because they've seen what we've done. Not for our glory. Okay, we're just, we're just as happy to drift into the background 
become part of the woodwork again. But God has called us for such a time as this to serve him. So we're going to steward that responsibly. Our ministry has expanded. And again, I don't say this, those of you that know me, this won't even cross your mind. I don't say this for my own edification. Okay, I honestly don't. I don't. I don't need it. But even our podcasting ministry for about Two years, I would say, before we started the Leadership Now podcast, the guys, some guys in the church, oh, you should do a podcast. I'm like, I don't want to do a podcast. No, do a podcast. Do a pod- I don't want to do a podcast. Finally, I said, okay, maybe I should do a podcast. One of the podcasts I did, I think three weeks ago, has had over 16,000 downloads already. So the, the word is spreading, and it, it's, it's, it's interesting to see our influence our influence spread so that we can be glorified? No, no interest in that at all. If you're a glory hog, by the way, I'll just tell you something straight up, it's very anticlimactic, very anticlimactic. But for God's glory, at different junctures in history, he stewards people greater or lesser amounts of influence. And when you use that for his honor and glory, and it is truly for his honor and glory, he will steward you more. Doesn't mean your life's gonna get less busy, by the way. But we, we praise God for that. So ministry, perseverance in ministry bears fruit. It always does. This is why I'm not a cut and run kind of guy. I remember when I started off in my Bible college and seminary training back in 1991, at the time, the average tenure of a youth pastor in a church was two years. And I think the average tenure of a senior pastor was five years. That was the culture. You come, and it's always a bigger church that calls, never a smaller one. And as soon as a bigger church calls, the Lord has called you elsewhere and you move on, right? And you just have this revolving door of pastors in the life of a church. I'm not that kind of guy. And then in the, among congregations, you often have people, oh, I went to that church for two or five years and I went to that one, then that one, then that one. Their, their, their life is chocked full of an endless array of churches that they've stepped into and out of, stepped into and out of. Now, I'm not suggesting there's never an appropriate time for a pastor to leave or never an appropriate time for a congregant to leave the congregation. But what about perseverance? You know, what about sticking to it, Right? So again, I don't know what the Lord has in store for me, but I, I'm hoping to pastor this church for at least 40 years. You're, that's over halfway. So you don't have to put up with me for another 40, okay? But the reason why I, I have that in my mind, and I have since I was 28 years old when I planted this church, is because I want to role model perseverance. I want to role model perseverance even when it's hard because it would be easier for me to pack up my bags, sell my property at a premium and buy some property in, I don't know, rural Aruba (laughs) and do my podcasting ministry from there. (laughs) But I will not do that as God is my witness. I wanna manifest perseverance. And that is not of me because (laughs) I was saying this to Susie, one of the characteristics in our family and I, I, I became aware of this, I think, in my teen years, and I'm not faulting my, my parents. It's just, I think it's a, every family has its own characteristics. 
is I remember when we were growing up, if a relationship didn't go well, you just close her down. You just close her down. You just cut the person off. You just move on, right? That's my temptation at times. I'm just going to close that one down. I'm just going to move on. But that's not godly. Godly relationships are long-suffering, and they're patient, and they persevere. So that is not from me. That's fruit of the Spirit in my life, and if it's true of you in your life as well. So let's ensure that we are burdened for the church and that as an expression of that, we do a good job in the ministry of reconciliation and also as joyful contributors to the work of the ministry, to the honor and glory of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who is Jesus Christ. 